Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, we set the scene on what the Duchy of Burgundy was, where it was, and its history leading up to its golden age. This time, we'll take a look at its first Valois Duke, Philip the Bold, who brought Burgundy from a mid-sized Duchy of France to a state which could practically rival France itself. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 6, Episode 2. It's Burgundy Part 2, Philip the Bold. And this is the Almost Forgotten. Last time, we took a look at the beginnings of the Duchy of Burgundy, Philip the Bold's newly acquired territory, a fiefdom of the Kingdom of France. Young Philip had started a new dynastic house, an offshoot of the Valois, the ruling house of France, which is usually referred to today as the House of Valois Burgundy. On to the patriarch of this new house himself. Philip was born north of Paris in 1342. When he was born, he was the son of John, the Duke of Normandy, and grandson of Philip VI, the first Valois king of France. Philip VI died in 1350 and passed his crown onto his son, the Duke of Normandy, who became King John II and is known as John the Good. Philip was John's fourth son. John's oldest son, Charles, became the new Duke of Normandy and the Dauphin. His second son, Louis, was named Count of Anjou, eventually Duke of Anjou, and his third son, John, became the Duke of Berry. The fourth son of your typical French nobleman might be destined for the church or what have you, but not the fourth son of the king. Philip was groomed for high position in the king's court, and he was groomed to eventually be given the title of count or duke, ruling a region of the king's territory in his father's name. Throughout his childhood, the Hundred Years' War between England and France raged on, stopping when the Black Death made it impossible to fight, popping up again when one side felt strong enough to do something. At the beginning of 1356, the English began campaigning again in Aquitaine, in, let's call it the southwest quarter of France. Led by the Black Prince Edward, the heir to the English throne, who would have been Edward IV if he had made it that long, the English army began pillaging the region. Philip accompanied his father down from their campaign in Brittany to face off against this threat. They met face-to-face -face outside of Poitiers in September of 1356. Poitiers was one of three battles in the Hundred Years' War famous for the same thing. The other two were Cressy and Agincourt. That thing that they were famous for is the English demolishing the French, these victories often attributed to the English use of the longbow. The difference at Poitiers was that, after several hours of fighting, King John and his son Philip found themselves surrounded. Philip was said to have thrown himself into the thick of things and earned his sobriquet of bold that day, 
yelling to his father in desperation to defend himself from attacks coming from the right, then the left. The 14-year-old prince earned himself a reputation as a gallant and brave knight that day. He was wounded in the fighting and, along with his father, he would surrender to the English. The king and the young prince were taken to England as prisoners of war. Philip was not stuck in the basement dungeon of some castle or anything so dire. He played chess with the black prince, he learned falconry, and probably a bit about statecraft. And then he returned to France with his father in 1360, after they agreed upon an enormous ransom. John's son Louis was sent to England as a hostage until the ransom was paid in full, but he escaped. John was appalled at Louis's unchivalrous behavior, and he went back to England himself, voluntarily giving himself up again to make up for it. He arrived in early 1364, but he soon fell ill and died, although he was treated well by the English. Those three-plus years John was back, though, were quite eventful, at least with respect to his son Philip. First, in 1360, John named the now 18-year-old Philip the Bold as the Duke of Touraine, which was a new peerage creation. Touraine was not far from Poitiers, and this may have been done as an honorific for what Philip had done at that battle. While this was a nice reward, he got a much bigger one in 1363, as we discussed last episode. Whatever motivated John to do it, Philip returned his ducal rights over Touraine and received instead those to Burgundy. John first named Philip the Lieutenant General of Burgundy, but then named him Duke late in the year, although he did not actually make it publicly known. John died soon after, and his oldest son, the Dauphin Charles, was crowned King Charles V, and Charles officially and publicly acknowledged his younger brother's claim to the Duchy of Burgundy. In fact, he sent an army led by Bertrand du Guesclin, known as the Eagle of Brittany, to fight Charles the Bad, who was making noise about it being his inheritance. Du Guesclin, the best general on the French side at the time, was victorious, so Philip was able to claim the Duchy of Burgundy as his father had planned. The new Duke of Burgundy was not regarded as a good-looking man, but he was tall and strong. According to Calmet, he was charismatic, even charming, and likable, Having proven himself on the battlefield as a courageous soldier, it was time to show what he could do as a politician and a statesman. Despite the previous failed attempt to expand his territory through negotiations with the Holy Roman Emperor, he was able to snag Imperial Burgundy in the more traditional medieval European way. No, he didn't conquer it. He married into it. It was arranged with Louis of Mal, that Count of Flanders, for Philip to marry the Count's daughter, Margaret, named after her grandmother, who was at the time the Countess of Franche Comte. Flanders was an important territory in the Low Countries, on the western side of the Scheldt River. It was an industrial and trading hub of the day, especially cities like Ghent and Bruges. The wool trade with England was lucrative, as was other trade. Bruges was basically the easternmost continental trade hub for the dominant commercial network in the Baltic and North Seas, the Hanseatic League. We actually already met this younger Margaret last episode. She was the five-year-old that was married to Philip of Rouvre. She was 14 now, 
so it was getting closer to being appropriate, at least for the time. Her possessions would include some pretty good inheritances, including Flanders, Artois, and the free county of Burgundy, that is, the Holy Roman Empire's piece of Burgundy, Franche-Comte. Artois was in French territory, Flanders was mostly in French territory as well, although pieces of it were part of the Holy Roman Empire. Of course, all this meant that if everything went well, John the Good's son Philip and his wife Margaret would have a son, and he would inherit the counties of Flanders, Artois, and Franche-Comte. So it made all the sense in the world to give Philip the Duchy of Burgundy and have it passed on to his son as well. But it wasn't just a nice thing for France. It was vital. Before the young widow Margaret was engaged to Philip, her father Louis of Maul had arranged for her to marry Edmund of Langley. Edmund of Langley was the son of Edward III, King of England. And if Margaret had married him, that would have essentially given the English king some amount of control over Flanders and Artois, which could have been devastating to France during the Hundred Years' War. As it was, the Pope had already approved the Flemish-English marriage, so there was some work to do. But this was when the papacy resided in Avignon, so Pope Urban V, despite a reputation for being a pious reformer, knew it wouldn't be wise to snub the French king. He said that even though he had initially approved of the marriage, they were actually too closely related and forbade any priest from performing the ceremony. Even still, Louis of Maul seemed hesitant, probably fearing his policy of keeping the French from attacking him while keeping the English happy enough to be strong trading partners was in danger. But Louis's mother Margaret, a Capetian French noble through and through, seemed to give the final push needed. King Charles, as part of the negotiations, ceded Wallonia, south of Flanders, to Louis as part of the final bargain. This would just add to his presumably loyal French future nephew's inheritance, so no big deal, right? So anyway, Margaret's granddaughter Margaret and Philip were finally and officially engaged. They were married in Ghent, in Flanders, in June of 1369. This was Philip's first visit to Flanders, but he would spend much of the next two decades of his life visiting there at least once a year, sometimes with an army in tow. After the wedding, though, Philip had to join his older brothers, fighting the English. Charles selected Philip to lead an expedition across the Channel, but John of Gaunt, another one of King Edward's sons, landed in Calais and started mucking about in northern France. But Philip never actually engaged with the English, perhaps at the request of his brother. Meanwhile, Aquitaine, that region in southwest France, was under the control of its duke, the Plantagenet Edward, who happened to also be Edward III, King of England. He had given the land to his son, Edward the Black Prince. There was no dispute that he had the rights to do this. But when the Black Prince levied some high taxes on Aquitaine to help pay for his regime-changing adventures on the Iberian Peninsula, his feudal lords complained to King Charles. Charles demanded that the Black Prince come to Paris and explain himself, which, of course, he refused. So Charles declared these lands forfeit, in other words, saying that Edward III no longer held them by right, which really restarted the not-yet-dead Hundred Years' War. In 1317, John of Gaunt again came to Calais, 
this time with a larger invasion force. By the way, John of Gaunt was the first Duke of Lancaster, and his brother, who almost married Margaret, Edmund of Langley, was the first Duke of York. Their descendants, the Lancastrians and the Yorkists, would end up fighting the War of Roses over control of the English throne. But we're concentrating on Philip the Bold, who helped keep Lancaster's cavalry army from attacking Paris by properly positioning an army on its flank. John of Gaunt took his army south and then west, pillaging as he went, which was sort of an English trademark in this conflict. This was called a chevauchée, and this one went from Calais clear across France to Bordeaux, but a French army successfully ambushed them somewhere west of Burgundy, while Philip followed nearby as they tried to ravage his duchy. He forced John of Gaunt west, and when the English army finally made its way to Aquitaine, it was bruised and battered. In 1375, the opposing sides, thanks in part to papal intervention, agreed to a truce and tried to negotiate a peace in Bruges. Philip represented France in the negotiations, perhaps because Bruges was his father-in-law's territory, but also probably because King Charles trusted his little brother as a diplomat. But two years later, in 1377, the truce had ended and there was no settlement. The hang-up was Aquitaine, which the English insisted was their sovereign territory, but the French demanded must be subject to them, even if the Duke lived in England. France emerged from the truce, though, in a better position. Edward the Black Prince had died in 1377, and so did his father Edward III, which meant his ten-year-old son became King Richard II, and England was under a regency. In 1380, though, France lost their great champion and leading commander, Du Guesclin. An English army under Thomas of Woodstock, Earl of Buckingham at the time, another one of Edward III's sons, tried another chevauchée through France, and King Charles gave Philip command of the armies. Philip continued Du Guesclin's successful Fabian strategy of harassing the English and defeating them by attrition rather than direct engagement. According to Calmette, quote, Closely watched by Philip the Bold, Buckingham offered battle, but the challenge was naturally refused. Disappointed, Buckingham made his way westwards. The Duke of Burgundy followed at a short distance. He continued to carry out the pursuit of the English, which involved keeping a close watch on the enemy's movements, attacking isolated enemy units, disrupting communications, and harassing supply lines, while at the same time avoiding any serious clash. Unquote. While this was happening, though, Philip learned that his oldest brother was gravely ill. King Charles V soon died on September 16, 1380. His 12-year-old son became King Charles VI, and, like England, France would have a boy king. Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, and his two brothers, Louis, the Duke of Anjou, and John, the Duke of Berry, along with the young king's uncle on his mother's side, Louis the Duke of Bourbon, would be sensible regents if that's what they decided to do. Philip was now 38 and had been one of the leading players in French politics for 15 years. But Louis of Anjou, who was the eldest now, seized the crown jewels and called himself regent on official papers. Philip wasn't thrilled at this turn of events, so he marched to Paris, and he didn't exactly come alone. 
See, Philip the Bold was the youngest, but thanks to his gift of burgundy and his wife's holdings, well, Calmette specifically says he was the most powerful. It wasn't just money. He was an astute politician who had improved his position over the years. Okay, some of it was money, because he was able to pay many of the king's retainers to be his own retainers as well. This was typical medieval politics, and Philip wasn't afraid to make the money flow. Money and much sought-after Burgundian wine, actually. Anyway, they all agreed that Louis would get to be the regent, but only until the king was crowned, which would be like, right away. But the boy king would not be exactly given free reign. Calmette calls it the government of the uncles, and they were all given different jobs. Anjou was given the chair of the Regency Council, but wouldn't be able to make any moves without the rest of the council's approval. Barry went to control Languedoc and Guienne, and Philip of Burgundy, well, he had a few things to deal with, including Burgundy and Flanders, where his father-in-law Louis was count. But first, let's see off the oldest brother, Louis, Duke of Anjou. In 1382, Louis went off to save his cousin Joanna, a Valois, and the Queen of Naples, as well as the Countess of Provence. She had named him his heir, and she was dealing with a fight for her throne. As Louis marched with a formidable French army down towards Naples, Joanna was in prison, then died, most believe murdered, and he inherited Provence. But he wasn't able to secure Naples, and he died on campaign there in 1384. So Provence, along with Anjou, passed to his son Louis II, as well as at least claim to Naples. But since Philip the Bold and the Duke of Berry weren't interested in sending more money and men down to southern Italy, Louis II would have to be content with just the claim for now. Back to Philip. One of the reasons he wasn't interested in Italy was because he was preoccupied with what was going on to the north of France, in Flanders. Northern European towns, with their newly wealthy merchants, would sporadically face civil uprisings in the 14th century, especially over taxes. But in Flanders, today's northern Belgium, the burghers were extra wealthy, thanks to rapid medieval industrialization, and they were especially powerful in their cities. So when Louis of Mal wouldn't listen to their complaints, they started a revolt. Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres had formed a sort of confederacy of like-minded cities a few decades earlier to try to flex their civic powers. Richard Vaughn points out that these three cities, quote, possess some of Europe's largest concentrations of industrial workers. This urban proletariat had been in a more or less permanently turbulent condition since the early years of the 14th century, unquote. They became the center of this rebellion against Louis of Maul. It started in 1375, when he tried to build a canal that would have crushed trade in Ghent, bypassing it. The burghers there got the citizens to take up arms, killing some officials in town. Most of the citizens of Bruges and Ypres sided with them, and Louis acquiesced. He let them set up a council, but hostilities continued, especially from Ghent. Louis eventually attacked Ypres, and executed some of the rebel leaders, but he was unable to take Ghent. In 1382, the rebels, led by the burgher Philip van Artevelt, who happened to be the son of an earlier rebel leader, marched on Bruges, 
where Louis of Maul was hanging out. The Bruges forces came out to engage in battle, which may have been a mistake because they were drunk thanks to a town holiday. They were routed, and Louis of Maul, Count of Flanders, had to flee from his own people. He made it back into Bruges, but it was such a rout that they couldn't close the city gates before the attackers arrived. Louis fled the city, making it out safely, and the burghers from Ghent took out their anger on the burghers from Bruges that had been against them. They killed those opposed and took control of Bruges before ransacking the castle of Maul just outside the city, where Count Louis had been born. And by the way, I'm using the term burger, not just merchant, because there's a nuance here. A burger was a little bit more like a rank, a class separate from the general peasantry, with additional privileges. Many burghers were merchants, but a burger could also be a craftsman. They were part of the city in medieval Western Europe. The term itself comes from the term borough, which meant a fortified town or city. So a burger was someone that lived in a fortified town or city, and eventually it was associated with those in the merchant class. Back to what the burghers were doing. Calmette claims that this sent shockwaves through the French court, because if a republic of sorts was set up in Flanders, the whole medieval system could come crashing down. And the burghers in Paris were making noise themselves. France had major stakes in smashing the rebellion, regardless of any sort of political overtones. Philip, of course, was keenly interested in the lands that his wife would be inheriting. Louis begged for help, and he got it. France sent an army with a significant share of soldiers from Brittany, where Louis's brother-in-law was duke, and from Burgundy, where the duke was, of course, his son-in-law. Eventually, the army was joined by the French king, Charles VI, who was nearly 16 years old. Van Artevelt seemed to know what he was doing. At least, he wasn't just sitting and waiting to be attacked. He sent ambassadors to the English for help, and worked on destroying bridges and doing other things to make Flanders more defensible. But it seemed he didn't expect the French to mobilize quite so quickly, and he didn't have the forces to take them on. He had one other victory against some of Louis of Maul's forces, but soon the full might of France was upon him. In November, at Roosebrook, the two armies met. King Charles led the center, and it was pushed back at first before his left and right wing came in and completely smashed the Flemish militia. Van Artevelt was killed, and the rebellion dissolved. Louis again controlled Flanders, everywhere but Ghent, actually, which still held out for the time being. The city was way too big to easily besiege, and it was already November, winter was coming on. So instead, the French then went and sacked Courtrai, a nearby city, no doubt because it had been the site of the Battle of the Golden Spurs 80 years earlier, in which the Flemish soundly defeated the French. As it turned to December, it was no time for campaigning. The king and his uncles returned to Paris and hanged a few rebellious burghers there for good measure. Flanders was not done with them yet, though, and in 1383, English help finally arrived. A bit late for Van Artevelt, but hey, what are you going to do? An army led by Henry de Spencer, who had just put down a peasant's revolt in England two years before, took a group of adventurers and mercenaries down to help out the Flemish uh, peasant's revolt. They took a few towns before being pushed back trying to attack Ypres in June. So they besieged the city, with help from the militia from Ghent. Philip began gathering another French army with his nephew's approval, 
and it was set to gather in Arras, not far from Flanders, in August. Not wanting to wait for this army to come get him, Dispenser withdrew in early August, deciding to lift the siege and retreat. Chased to the Channel, he negotiated a truce to make it back to England. While Ghent remained in rebellion, it was now alone. And then, in January of 1384, Louis of Maul died. And so, his daughter Margaret became the Countess of Flanders, Artois, Nevers, and Franche Comte. Margaret may well have been involved in some of the ruling of these places, and her relationship with Philip appears to have been good. They seem to have trusted each other. So Philip, in effect, ruled all these lands, at least partially. Of course, he wasn't the ultimate lord in any of these places. Flanders was mostly controlled under the French crown, although this united county was also under imperial suzerainty in its easternmost parts. Franche Comte, the county of Burgundy, was also part of the Holy Roman Empire. Otherwise, these are mostly French territories we're talking about, making him one of the biggest landholders in the kingdom. And now, with all of his holdings, we're really talking about more than the Duchy of Burgundy. So to avoid confusion, or maybe add to it, I don't know, I'll just refer to the territorial holdings of the House of Valois Burgundy as the State of Burgundy. When I talk about the Duchy of Burgundy, I'm still talking about the small duchy within France. Well, it's not that small, but it's smaller than the State of Burgundy. And so, in spring of 1384, Philip went up to claim his, I mean his wife's, inheritance in the Low Countries. The trip up there was pretty ostentatious. Philip was prone to extravagance, although he wasn't alone among the Dukes of Burgundy in that regard. He made his way up to the region, although it remained at least somewhat rebellious, especially Ghent. Eventually, other cities rejoined, and a full civil war was possible. But Philip was not his father-in-law. He did gather another French army, and he did go in and execute a few rebel leaders. But he also turned on the Burgundian charm, which included some gift-giving to the right folks, and he was able to fully subdue the rebellion without another battle. One reason was that he wasn't so picky about whether or not the Flemish people recognized the Pope in Avignon or the one in Rome, which was a practical move to prevent the Western Schism from creating a holy war. In December of 1385, the Peace of Tournai was signed, formalizing Ghent's submission to Philip and his wife as the fife holders of the Duchy of Flanders. The treaty also ended the city's relationship with England and the rebellion and the Low Countries never had a problem with imperial masters again. After subduing Flanders, Philip decided the next logical step would be to take the French army to his new territory and launch an invasion of England. Because why not take the war to them, right? A massive army was gathered in 1386, and an armada was readied at Slaus on the coast of Zeeland, but the invasion never happened. Philip's plan appears to have been foiled by his remaining brother, John, the Duke of Berry, who delayed with his army until, oh, look at that, it's winter and it's just too late in the season now. Next year, right? Next year didn't happen, though, and England would have to wait two centuries, till 1588, for an armada to try and pick up a bunch of soldiers in the Netherlands and invade the island. On second thought, maybe it was better for Philip the Bold that this one was never launched. In spite of this, 
the Duke of Berry was rarely a major challenge to Philip. With Louis, Duke of Anjou, dead, Berry was the eldest living brother, but he tended to defer to Philip and focus on southern France. So while Charles VI was so young, Philip was the leading figure in France. At least until 1388, when Charles took control of the government and dismissed his uncles, but we'll get to that. Meanwhile, Philip was able to work on growing Burgundy through marriage alliances. These alliances were going to give him more lands, but they'd be imperial lands, not French lands. He was enlarging his family's territory, not France's. The key to this plan was his eldest son, John, the Count of Nevers. He worked with the recently widowed Joanna, the Duchess of Brabant. Brabant was an important territory. It bordered the county of Flanders, on the other side of the vital Scheldt River. Ghent and Bruges were the big boy merchant cities of the time, but before the end of the next century, the trade hubs would shift over to Brabant, in cities such as Brussels, and especially Antwerp. The Duchess of Brabant wanted to continue in her role without the Holy Roman Empire coming in and booting her. And in Philip and his wife Margaret, she found very willing partners. Margaret was Joanna's niece and her closest relative, so if Brabant was protected and kept in Joanna's hands, it would eventually become part of Burgundy. Joanna worked her own connections to arrange a marriage for her niece's children. Philip and Margaret's son and daughter would marry the son and daughter of Duke Albert of Bavaria. Duke Albert also happened to be the Count of Haino, Holland, and Zealand. Haino was on the border with France, bordering Artois, a Burgundian holding, as well as bordering Flanders and Brabant. Holland and Zealand were waterlogged counties to the north, with a bunch of fishermen and little trader industry to speak of, but hey, more territory is more territory. Amsterdam was a new city that had just started growing, but it wouldn't really flourish until, well, you should probably go ahead and listen to the episodes I did on the Dutch Revolt in Season 4 to get all that info. None of these territories would go to Philip or his son, but forming a close familial alliance with the powerful Duke of Bavaria, who also happened to rule territories on their border, was no small accomplishment. And Philip's son John was marrying into the family. Margaret, John's wife, would bring no lands of her own, but thanks to her brother, John and Margaret's son would be the nephew of the count of all these lands. But let's save that for later. The marriage took place in 1385, and Philip not only solidified his hold on his lands in the Netherlands, he had also helped gain Brabant as an eventual inheritance. In this period, he really began consolidating his administration in his territories. Vaughn writes that Philip ensured that his land, quote, did not consist of an amorphous scattering of separate administrations, but its centralization and coordination was due to him a radical governmental and administrative reorganization. Because of this, Burgundy became a state instead of a haphazard dynastic grouping of territories, So this land was not only his, it was pretty governable and centralized. Besides this, he also spent the latter part of the decade working to placate the Hanseatic League, which had been pushed aside by Louis of Maul and needed to be coerced to resume using Bruges as a primary base of operations. 
He was able to do this, though, demonstrating how important these lands were and how much of his attention they got. But then he had to keep them. The Duke of Gelderland was making some noise like he was going to attack Brabant on behalf of the House of Luxembourg, which happened to be the ruling family of the empire at the time. Philip the Bold gathered another large French army, and he and his royal nephew trudged up in that direction in 1388. There didn't seem to be any major battles, but it was a show of force that kept Joanna in power, and the empire hesitant to try any more funny business. Well, I mean, it sort of kept Joanna in power. In reality, Philip was slowly stripping Joanna of power himself, trying to incorporate Brabant into his own territory. Upon their return to Paris, Charles VI decided he would no longer need his uncles as his regent. Barry and Burgundy did what they could to convince him to change his mind, but really, Charles was 20 now, so how much longer were they really going to be in charge? Really, much of this split was led by his other advisors, other powerful lords of the kingdom, who worked to push the uncles out of power. And, quite frankly, Philip wasn't exactly acting in the interest of the crown all the time. Marching the French army up to the Low Countries every few years was expensive, and who did it benefit? Mostly Philip. He wasn't exactly a selfless regent here. Joanna was still worried about Gelderland, though, so Philip, charming as he was, convinced her to put herself under his protection. So in 1390, she gave Brabant to him to rule, although she didn't actually just hand over her title. The estates of Brabant wouldn't allow their duchy to be incorporated with the neighboring Flanders into some large Netherlandish state. They demanded separation. Philip was a politically gifted man, and in order to keep the Brabantines happy, he made sure their sensibilities were accounted for by making sure it wasn't formally consolidated into his holdings. So rather than his eldest son and heir, John, being named heir of Brabant, he had Joanna name his other son, Anthony, as her heir. This may seem like minutia, but what this did was keep the Duchy of Brabant nominally independent. This all transpired over the 1390s, and in 1403, the approval of the Brabantine estates of this whole plan was formally given. Back to France, though. In 1392, Charles had his first known bout of delusion. Once named Charles the Beloved by his people, he would eventually be known as Charles the Mad. But he would reign for 30 more years, with various interests vying for control of the often indisposed king. Philip, of course, was one of these interests. After trying to attack his own men during a psychotic break, Charles was quickly deemed unable to rule alone. According to Vaughan, quote, Philip, supported as always by his brother of Barry, acted at once and firmly assumed control of affairs. The principal counselors and royal officers who had enjoyed power since 1388 were thrown into prison, unquote. Philip, though, did not have free reign as the king's regent. One rival remained, the king's younger brother, Louis of Orléans. We'll get to him. First, though, both England and France were tired of their forever war, so in the 1390s they engaged in negotiations for peace. Philip was the leading policymaker in France in terms of English affairs and helped steer the many negotiations towards a lasting truce. Finally, in 1396, King Charles VI's daughter, Isabella, married Richard II, King of England, 
She was about six, and he was in his late 20s. The wedding was accompanied by a 28-year truce between the two kingdoms. But as the rivalry with England subsided, a new rivalry grew. This one was between the king's uncle and the king's brother, Philip and Louis, Burgundy and Orléans, and it would grow and fester, and it would outlast both men. Orléans had a chance to claim Savona, which would have given him Genoa. Philip was concerned this could cause significant economic harm to his Netherlands holdings, which of course engaged in significant trade with Genoa. He politically outmaneuvered Orléans and kept the young prince from claiming it. Their rivalry continued, and as Charles descended into and recovered from madness, the two men each had turns being his regent. Both would work to drain the treasury of France. But while Philip wasn't afraid to spend money and show off, he was also spending money to expand his family's territories. Orléans, on the other hand, gained a reputation for spending all he could of the kingdom's money on parties. Early on, though, although he had certainly had his brother's ear whenever Charles was feeling particularly not psychotic, according to Vaughan, quote, between 1392 and 1400, scarcely a murmur was held against Philip the Bold's rule, unquote. Philip was able to flex his muscles in organizing what was known as the Crusade of Nicopolis. Crusade is a term used because it was an attack launched against non-Christians, but it is probably better to think of this one as an attempt at a European-wide alliance to defend the weakened kingdom of Bulgaria, as well as the kingdom of Hungary, from the surging Ottoman Turks, of great importance to the neighboring Holy Roman Empire. Sure, eventually they wanted to conquer Jerusalem and all that, but that was not the initial goal. Philip had intended to go himself, alongside rivals Louis of Orléans and John of Gaunt, but when the other two dropped out, he did so too. Philip's son John went instead, so we'll talk about it more next episode. But while the whole thing ended up being a disaster, the fact that it was arranged and financed by Philip and led by John was a testament to Burgundian wealth and power. Over his final years, whether acting as his nephew's regent or not, Philip spent this time working on expanding his own family's security through more marriage alliances. He arranged for marriages for his children to allies along his eastern border, helping make Burgundy's neighborhood safer, as it were. He even worked to make sure his grandchildren got married, including his son John's daughter Margaret, to King Charles's son, the Dauphin Louis. He used this to try and solidify his house's strong relationship and commitment to the Kingdom of France. In 1404, Philip traveled to Brussels to throw a lavish celebration for Joanna, who was now 82, and had formally and officially named Philip's son Anthony as heir to the Duchy of Brabant. Philip fell ill, though, and he soon died while in the Low Countries. He was 62 years old, and at the time of his death, he was the Duke of Burgundy, and with his wife, the Count of Franche-Comte, Flanders, and Artois. His wife Margaret died only a year later. Philip the Bold spent most of his last two decades ruling from Paris, rather than Dijon in Burgundy or Lille in the Low Countries, but this was because he was able to rule his disparate territories equally well from there. He used trusted men as governors in his different lands, or in the case of the Duchy of Burgundy, he had a ducal council. But Paris was relatively equidistant from the Low Countries and the two Burgundies, 
so he could get to either area if need be. His wife Margaret, although she was from Flanders, spent the majority of her time in Burgundy. She was his trusted lieutenant there, acting on his behalf. So in Paris he stayed. This allowed him to interfere in French statecraft, as any good prince of the blood should. He had greatly expanded his territories, but not for the glory of France, rather for the glory of himself and his heirs. His desire to grow the power of the House of Valois Burgundy sometimes coincided with France's interests, but other times it opposed them. It didn't matter to him, and his heirs would take this attitude to another level, starting with his son John. He may have been selfish, but he was well regarded in his lifetime. He was respected in the Low Countries, where he first entered to quell civil wars against his father-in-law. He continued to make his presence known there, sometimes pushing the locals and their town charters and rights, but he was a savvy enough politician to never push them too far. He was working in his own interests, but for the most part, those broadly coincided with those of his territory in the region, mostly in the trading and industrial cities of Flanders. He was also a strong administrator, which helped improve the prosperity there and helped to unite the lands together. Philip worked well with his wife Margaret, who brought him Flanders and helped rule Burgundy for him. He was loyal to her and to his family. He was generous to his children. In fact, he was generous to most people. He wasn't what you would call a miserly or thrifty ruler. This probably helped set Burgundy's reputation as one of the most luxurious courts in all of Europe. He encouraged, appreciated, and became a strong patron of the arts, a tradition his heirs would also continue. Although it must be stated that he was emulating the behavior of his eldest brother, King Charles V, a great patron of the arts. Regardless, Philip encouraged art in both Burgundy and the Low Countries. And Burgundian art, that is, the art and style of the whole of his territory, began to flourish under Philip. He was buried at his request, a request presumably made before he died, in a monastery he had founded outside of Dijon, the capital of Burgundy. The sculptures on what became the family tomb are considered exemplary pieces of Burgundian art. The tomb was moved to Dijon during the French Revolution to preserve some of the works, although there was much that was still vandalized. Philip greatly expanded Burgundy and then set it up as a nearly independent state, at least in the way it was run. He created something much more than a duchy of the Kingdom of France. He did so by putting his interests ahead of those of France. Although those things were not always at odds, such as the 1386 planned invasion of England, which was foiled by the heel-dragging self-interest of his brother, the Duke of Berry, and Philip schemed to grow his territory, not unlike the other peers of the realm, although he was more successful at it. Richard Vaughan writes of Philip, quote, While the merits of Philip the Bold as a statesman are undisputed, Philip the Bold, like the others, was acting for himself and for his own house. France was there to be used and exploited, and, in this use and exploitation of France, Philip excelled his rivals and relatives, both in the amount of material assistance he extracted and the unscrupulousness of his means of extracting it, unquote. Philip was a gifted statesman, although not a particularly honest one, and he outmaneuvered his fellow princes of the blood to create a real state that was somehow almost independent of 
yet reliant on the kingdom of France. When he died, his territories were handed over to his son John, and the legacy he built continued on with John. Next time, we'll see how John followed in his father's footsteps, not only expanding Burgundy, but also making it more independent of France, perhaps even creating a rival or enemy state. Thanks for listening.